Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with Kansas City-based playwright, author, and artist Olivia Hill. She is a survivor of child abuse, poverty, and sexual trauma. Her mental health journey has been a long but successful one. She lived in interior Alaska for over 13 years, with the majority of that time with no indoor plumbing. Her current project is a personal memoir called Travel North Black Girl. Four of her plays have been produced and performed in over five states, including New York, in Washington, D.C. Enjoy this interview. Thanks for taking a minute out today. Sure, no problem. So are you up in Alaska? No, I'm here in Kansas City. Oh, okay, all right, because I know on the description it said Alaska, and so I was just trying to... So, okay, great, yeah, so you're here, um, you're here where I'm at, wonderful. Uh, yes, I should say that I'm back in, in Kansas City. Yeah, I grew up here and uh, went to Alaska in, in my early 20s. And stayed there for well over thirteen years. Okay, I just interviewed a musician from Chicago yesterday that did a gig up in Alaska and just was raving about how wondrous it is up there and how lucky he was to be able to have that opportunity. So it's interesting. Alaska must be rotating in the uh, in the cosmos above me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I I think so. I think when it starts calling you, you'll hear it from everywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking a minute out today. And I want, before we get into your life as a playwright, author, and artist, I want to know, how did you do during the two years primarily of the COVID shutdown? And how did that time change you? Well, um, COVID, I think, you know, hit us all with a surprise, but, you know, I stay pretty engaged with um, with the news, that sort of thing. It's, it's just sort of one of those weird little hobbies that I ended up developing after being in Alaska, but it hit, I think it hit us all pretty hard and it hit me and my family hard. We were more uh, prepared in the sense that, um, you know, it's funny how how the events in your life will prepare you for things. You know, I was raised by grandparents, and um, they came from, you know, the time when we had, when there was nothing, you know. Uh, they were that era of save everything, use everything. So I ended up doing okay. My kids and I kind of hunkered in. Um, I have a um, multi you know, generational um, family here. That's how we live, my grandson, my son, and my daughter. And uh, we ended up fixing up uh, the downstairs basement, remodeling that by hand, doing some gardening, you know. So we pulled in and just became kind of, you know, inner reflective. And we got through, unfortunately, that's the good side of it. The bad side of it, was that I was one of those early, early victims of COVID. So ended up with all of the symptoms and sickness before we had any um, vaccination and before we even had any tests in order to find out for sure. Um, I have asthma, so it hit me pretty hard. And um, from my perspective, it was pretty touch and go for a while. A couple of times I thought this was it, but I didn't tell my kids. 
I really struggled really hard. I couldn't lay down, couldn't breathe laying down. It was it was pretty rough. And I had long haulers, so it lasted well over nine months before I could even get back to uh, just walking around the block, let alone doing hiking like I like to do. You know, I'm always curious about somebody that's well-traveled that, you know, has grown up in this town that I know I've been here my whole life and mm-hmm. left and come back. What was that like for you? How did you appreciate or look at this town differently after leaving and coming back? Wow. You know, um, I think, and you're right, you know, when I left here and ended up in Alaska after 13 years, I eventually ended up in New York and um, and the D.C. and the Maryland area. And so coming back, um, first of all, you know, I had been back and forth. There's seven generations of my family uh, in Kansas City. So I had returned as much as I could during the time I was in Alaska. And that was interesting because it had taken me about three years before I really came back. Um, after going to, you know, to Alaska. And that experience was odd because, you know, uh, the last leg of the trip was always a smaller plane, and that smaller plane uh, was filled with people seemingly from Kansas City, and I could just feel it. I just knew that they were. Um, During that time, that was the early 80s, um, not a lot. Of, I didn't see a lot of um, black people traveling with me during that time, and so it was an atmosphere that was um, familiar, uh, distant with the people that were on the plane. But then, coming back here and settling here about five, six years ago, it has changed in, in many ways. In many ways, of course, it hasn't because we're in a time in this country where the the head of oppression and and racism and sexism and ageism and every kind of ism that there is um, has reared its ugly head. But one of the things that's more powerful to me about coming back. Um, is the art scene. That's really incredible to me. And it's not doing bad on the front of food either, which, you know, I am a creative in all of those areas. And that was really powerful for for me. Um, The other thing is, is that I had a lot of fear in coming back, you know, concern about reliving so much of the trauma in which I sustain and living in Kansas City and Missouri in the Midwest. Um, But as I slowly acclimated myself and moved around, um, there's a lot of difference. And I think part of that difference is is that people are coming from all over uh, to live in Kansas City. And that intermixing of culture, people from different geographical areas, you know, starts to slowly infuse itself uh, in its uh, worldly mentality on a smaller area like here. And so I think that makes all the difference in the world. But but the art scene is is amazing, and, and I was shocked 
you know, because, you know, growing up here, for me, I wasn't considered or seen as an artist. As a matter of fact, discouraged. I remember talking to someone about going to the art school here, and I was so excited I wanted to apply and, and was told, basically, you won't get in. You know, it's, it's not for you. And, um, and so I just sort of let that go. But I discovered so much more when I got to Alaska that I ended up going to school to be a chef and I went to school, you know, for, for theater and for playwriting and as well as, uh, visual arts and, and have, have my degrees in those areas. So I am a true creative and artist through and through. Can't do anything else. If you were in front of a bunch of grade school kids at a career day and one of them looked up at you and said, what do you do for a living? How would you answer them? I would answer them by saying, you know, what I do is the thing that I'm meant to do. And um, I've always have been uh, a creative in some sense of the word. You know, I did not understand that that could mean that I could make a living at it or um, be accepted at it. But I think, first of all, I think that we have a tendency to push our children towards something that we think that they should do in order to make a a good living, as my grandmother would say, uh, financially. But the reality is, is that we are all shaped and made to do something. There's something internally in us. If we were to really flourish and grow, then you have to tap into what's already there. You got to mine that part of your spirit and your soul that is calling you. Because it's not only just about what you could do, right, that could financially support you and support all the things you want to do. But if you're killing your spirit and your soul all along, you, you know, you're not going to sustain yourself or anything, and you'll lose it. Over a period of time, you know, you can only throw so much garbage and stuff on top of and suppress who and what you are uh, before it either just sort of dies out and you're just sort of this empty soul running around. So, you know, I would say to them that what I do is what's internally in me. I am a creative, and I use that to communicate to the world um, a part of my humanness and the spirit that's within me uh, to share the human and the living experience here on this earth. And so I seek those things that allow me to be that creative, whether it's through um, theater as a playwright and writing those kind of uh, play scripts or as a visual artist. And that creativity grows across the board. My tra- training as um, as a printer, relief printer, doing woodcuts and linoleums and and etchings, that sort of thing, or watercolors that I taught myself to do before I even uh, got into art school. And and now I also just sort of um, uh, make whatever I want, whether it's jewelry or, you know, working on a piece of furniture or that sort of thing. So I think that if you're true to yourself, I would encourage kids to not let anyone discourage them from their path. 
Because if you're true to yourself, you'll be a whole self. So let's go back to your childhood. Talk to me a little bit about how these seeds of creativity were planted in you and have become who you are. Wow. Well, you know, I didn't find out until, oh, God, many, many years later that my mother had been an artist. My mother uh, did not raise me, but my biological um, paternal grandmother and father did. And I didn't know that anything about her. And so, you know, there was a thread that ran through me, you know, and my siblings. So when I was a kid, um, my older siblings were the artists. I had a, my older sister uh, had did a mural in Kansas City as part of some project uh, when she was in high school. And uh, my brother was quite the drawer as well and was lifted up as being the artist in the family. And I sort of was a, a sleeper artist. So no one really paid much attention. You know, I was the kid that, you know, showed the picture and it's like, oh, that's sweet, and then found it in the trash later um, sort of thing. And so I didn't really think of myself as that. I, I was probably pretty crafty. You know, we had very little growing up. My grandmother was raising four grandchildren. Um, my father was her only child, and she was already at that um, ripe age of, you know, uh, going through the change menopause. And, um, and she was an amazing cook. That was the one thing about her is that she, and I came from a long line of cooks. My grandfather was. He owned a little chicken shack off of Purcell, uh, about 47th in Purcell, and um, <clears throat> when I was a kid growing up. And so they were great cooks. My great-grandparents I knew until I was like 13 years old. And, um, and they were also, you know, farmers. They came off the farm. So there were layers of things that influenced my creativity. One of them was that my great-grandparents uh, and my grandmother, they came off of farms, they did things like canning and preserving. But my grandmother also was a gatherer, and uh, and she was also what most people would call now a healer. She just simply knew plants and herbs, and she would gather and use those things in order to heal us when there was no money to go to uh, a doctor. And, and so she did. <clears throat> and so... You know, those the art of doing that stuck with me as well. And so all of those things filtered in somehow. You know, there's something about looking at the generations if you have the opportunity. And many, you know, blacks in America don't have those connections, you know, even to great-grandparents, let alone grandparents. I was blessed to have that and to be surrounded by a lot of elders within my family with knowledge of the art of healing or gathering or canning and preserving food as well as um, just being a creative. She was very artistic in how she used very little um, to decorate the home or take care of things. And so... You know, I've often said that I was going to have a T-shirt that says um, I was the daughter and granddaughter of Meg Do and Jimmy Rigg. 
And so that informed me by the small things we had. You know, if there were scraps and leftover pieces of uh, construction paper from school, I was asked if I could take those throwaway things, and I brought them home. Um, if there were small little things, lids to jars that I found, I would use those things to make things. And I would sit hours on the floor in, in, in my room um, that was shared with two other sisters and just make things, you know. Um, if I had an opportunity, I had a brother-in-law later on that used to, um, his his sister and him bought the greenware, and he was showing them to us, and I would paint them for him, these fine details um, on the work and give them back to them. So, you know, those that was the sort of creative process for me. And one of the strongest creative process, which is why I mentioned, you know, um, my grandparents, great-grandparents coming off the farm, was being in nature. So I didn't have a real clear sense of what that meant because, you know, we lived in Kansas City in the inner city right off of um, 39th and, and Bell Fountain. And... In that community, like most inner city, city communities, there's very little green areas. But there were our backyards and the backyards behind us. And for me, it was like being in nature. You know, our house next door, uh, the house that was next door to us grew up in these sort of uh, wild brambles and limbs and trees overgrown. And it was just, an adventure for me to do that and did not know that there was a calling for me to that sense of wildness and nature. And a lot of my art form took on that, you know, finding things, you know, interesting pieces of wood or, or small stones or whatever it was. But um, it drew me in right from the beginning. And later, I think that was a part of informing me not only in my artistic bend, but to be willing to go someplace like Alaska. All of us as artists are motivated by the things that we've been, you know, we've seen or experienced growing up. What was it for you? What album, what painting, what book? What is it that really parted the curtains for you that made you think, wow, this is something that not only I love, but I'd like to create something like this one day? Wow, you know, that's um that's a complex question because you know, we're we're taking these sort of tiny steps uh every day that becomes uh cumulative, right? And so there were a lot of things early on. Like I said, my, my sister and my brother was an artist, but I wasn't really viewed as one and I watched them. And when I would see a piece of work that was drawn, and there were small other things, you know, uh, being a part of a school system that was not a great school system. But one of the things I remember very young is being taken on a field trip to the Nelson Art Gallery, right, and uh, trying to understand uh, what materials they were using in a painting and, and how did it get there. I mean, my earliest memory um, was going to Mary Harmon Weeks Elementary School and being in an art class and having materials just put in front of me that I could use 
And that was the, one of the biggest impacts. And then it goes on from there, those small accumulative things. When I finally met um, a woman, a Jewish woman, that came into my life at one point, and um, probably this was in about 83 or something like that, or 84, but she had really imbued upon me, and this is before I went to school uh, for art, um, artists like uh, Kathy Colwitz, which did a lot of work in black and white that I love. I, I love the image of black and white. And uh, she did a lot of uh, drawings and things that had to do with uh, the common man and um, and doing times of poor people um, that were struggling the the downtrodden and I was just mesmerized by the storytelling in those works and how she spoke to through images what suffering really felt like what being empty of spirit was and how it showed up on the faces of people or even hope at time or the pleasure of some small thing was all there. And it was very powerful um, to me. Um, you know, I've come to, you know, going to school, see lots of great artists, but there were artists all around me in Kansas City, um, people that were never uh, would never be known their names that were powerful artists that came and went, you know, and their songs are not songs. And and music, music is a great, you know, motivator for me. It was then. I'm not um, grounded in music in the sense that I can talk about um, different artists and, and styles in a sense of influence and that sort of thing, but it was powerful to me. So I was always someone that was a bit of an enigma in my family and in my neighborhood. It didn't really quite fit. And, and one of the ways is that um, early on where everyone was really, you know, listening to funk or, you know, or, or R&B, that sort of thing, I had gravitated to hearing certain jazz artists, and I know you do a lot with that, and I was. I was very interested in that. And so I would just pick up pieces and hear someone playing something, and uh, early Herbie Hancock, and and I heard a little bit of Coltrane. But I grew up with the blues and because I had grandparents, and so the blues colored everything as well. It colors how I write. You know, um, those notes, that that movement, that uh, moody, dark, colors, all of those things. So art was really all around me um, in that way. And it would be easy to talk about the great artists, but I think that there are great artists that live next door to us. We just don't bother to pay any attention because they have not reached a status only because we have not put them there. And we have uh, not opened up and allowed for the great to become the great in that sense, and they die out. 
So, yeah, I, I think that that is uh, truly the biggest influence is, is all those things. There's great artists everywhere. So who would you consider a hero or a role model for you? Mm. That's a good one, too. Um, I've thought about this many times over the years. There are many uh, writers, uh, musicians, uh, movie, television personalities that I admire. Uh, I admire their work. Uh, Toni Morrison, uh, Bell Hooks, um, you know, a lot of uh, music, some of the music that sticks with me, uh, John Klimmer, uh you know, I, I could go on with various people, but I admire the work that they do and how they can reach in and speak to your soul and a part of you that is crying out uh, to say something and no one's listening, but they'll do it for us. But I have to totally admit that um, my heroes, were those around me, those people in my community, my neighborhood, um, those people, some that were not in my neighborhood and reached to care for someone. My heroes are uh, neighbors, grandparents, uh, in spite of the harshity of some of that reality, um, they were there. Uh, they stood the ground. They endured uh, a great deal that they endured and had to try to find some capacity uh, to care for others. And I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of neighbors when I was a kid, you know, growing up, um, would help someone else. My grandmother was one of those people um, that reached out and would do something to someone when we had very little ourselves. She used to always have a saying that if I got a dime, you got a nickel. And, you know, and those things came at a price, you know. There was a lot of ugliness. But they were my heroes. I, You know, people that can keep putting one foot in front of their the other and weighed down by shackles and... um unfairness and fear, but continuing to move, and that goes across race. That sense, yeah, those are my true heroes. The rest I admire. I admire the work that they do, and, um, you know, and that's really, I think that's really the thing for me. So, yeah, so what's been the best, fan letter or response you've gotten from your work? Oh, my God. I've gotten a lot, actually. Um, let me think the best. I've gotten one that actually uh, this particular fan letter uh, spoke to me. is two different fan letters, and, and I think that they have basically been the the kind of letter that I have received and one of them, one of the letters that I got said to me, or the person spoke to me and said, and also wrote it um, as as a review, 
And they said to me that it started as a question. How were you able to capture yourself, um, these painful experiences, and show up, you know, with clarity to share with society exactly who you are, not hiding behind anything and still having that voice because they struggled to do that in their own work. Um, and yet I know their work and the work is extremely powerful. Someone I respect uh, a great deal. And, and I said to them that, you know, over a period of time, I think one of the reasons of how I was able to do that is that I had been working on this process not only for a long time, but I had a mentor. Uh, her name was Pat Monahan. She was a professor at the University of Fairbanks, and she became a good friend because I was an older student, and we became good friends. And she had said to me one day after uh, reading some work, I had been in her class for a short period of time. I was going to school to be a chef, going through their culinary program. And she had said to me, you know, listen, I want you to read this person, that person, the other person. Um, and about a day or so after she had given me this list of books and people she wanted me to, to really take in and read, she said to me, um, you know, I changed my mind. Don't read anyone. My concern is, is that you will be influenced by those authors and just emulate them. She says, just keep going. Keep going because I think that you have a unique voice and it's going to take you somewhere that all of the reading of this material won't. It has just confused you, so I did. But a part of that caveat is that she um, had a class that I had to do, and my skills, my remedial skills were terrible. And so she said, well, you know, I'm, I shouldn't, I can't really keep you in this class, but I see talent in you, so if you will take a remedial class with my class. I'll keep you in here. Six months after, she asked me if she could, um, a couple of months actually after, she asked me if she could send in a piece of my work. At that point, like I said, I was set on culinary school, so I'm like, sure, whatever. And she did, and it was published six months later. And that started the whole lining me up to go in that direction. So when we talk about... Um, a note from someone, all of it comes together because of that. Because of, of being able to be alone in yourself and wrestle out uh, these truths and to become fearless like the people in my community, in my family were, to face things in spite of, all of those things came together in order for me to be able to speak earnestly. So when uh, he said to me, you know, asked me the question of what exactly 
you know, do I do or did I do, which I thought was a great compliment because he then went on to say to me that um, I inspired him to do better work, to be able to show up when he hasn't been able to show up in himself, to write the work earnestly from his soul as a human being, you know, lifting up all stones and be able to say what needs to be said. So that was really powerful for me because it was spoken from the truest part of himself. A love, transparency, and honesty. The second was a young woman <clears throat> that came to a book festival that I did in Maryland, Gaithersburg, Maryland. And she came up to me and she said, uh, her mother came up first and said, you know, uh, she's my, my daughter's really frustrated. She doesn't, you know, she's not able to really get to talk to any of the authors. And, um, you know, she was disappointed at this book festival. She thought she would. Young African-American um, teenager. And so I said, we'll bring her over. And she brought her over, and we sat down in the back of the table, and we just had a long conversation. And we had a long conversation about what it means uh, to be a writer and what it means to be first a person, you know, and how you be able to deliver the experience um, to all humanity because all of us make up humanity, all of us. And to have a piece of it missing is to not tell all of the pieces of humanity that makes us what are what we are the good the bad the indifference and so she she later before she left uh asked me if she could give me a hug and she said and she thanked me and she said it meant everything to her and that she wouldn't give up and she would keep writing and uh and that meant a lot to me to know that I moved her in a way where she had began to have doubt and wasn't sure. And she was being sort of guided away from the idea that, you know, it's not like we make a lot of money unless you become the Toni Morrison's or the Bell Hook. And, and I wouldn't say that they're rolling in dough or Bell Hooks were, either one of them were. But on the other hand, you know, we call on the artist when our souls are sick. We call on the artist, you know, when our spirits are lifted and we need to dance. We call on the artist when things seem hopeless, but we push them aside. We shove them in the darkest of corners. We don't feed them or give them anything when we don't need them. And and I think that um, we need to realize that art of all forms and those that are willing to sacrifice and give over their calling and their life to humanity all need to be lifted up and heard for the sake of the soul of humanity. That's very well said. Olivia, where is the best place for anybody out there that wants to see your work, 
to purchase books, anything related to your world, where's the best place for them to go? Well, um, I'm, I'm about to go to the uh, Can- Kansas City, Kansas Book Festival. So I will be there if they want to meet me in person. Um, I will be there uh, at that book festival. It's coming up on the 24th. I remember correctly, and um, and I'll be glad to find a book. I'll be glad to talk to people. You know, I, I do enjoy that. Other than that, you can order your book online from any of the outlets. There's, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, all of them. But I always encourage people to go to your local bookstore. Um, they will get the book for you or have the book. Kansas City Museum has my book. Um, they are there. We have Roundtable Bookstore in Kansas City, Kansas. They have the book there. Um, we have a lot of local bookstores. I am truly a believer in the small, the underdog, uh, artists supporting artists, collaboration. So I first asked you to go to your local bookstore, and if they don't have the book, Tell them to get the book, you know. So there are a few of them, you know, in the area that is carrying the, the green, um, the green door in Kansas City also has the book. And I'm trying to remember all the, the different places. Wise Blood uh, has the book. So yeah, those are some of the places that you can get the book. Come out and see me, and uh, in Topeka, Kansas for the book festival out there, the uh, Kansas City, Kansas Book Festival. And I'd love to talk to anyone that wants to come out and find the book and and get the book. And, of course, you can always go to my website and find more information about um, my um, scripts that I do. I've been a playwright for many, many years, much longer than I was writing a book, and have a huge body of work. Uh, Wanda Lorraine Hansberry from the Kennedy Center for my play, Mother Spence. And they can find me on OliviaHillWrites.com. Beautiful. Olivia, thank you very much for taking time out today. Good luck with everything. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Joe. Hope to talk to you again sometime. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, and music around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.